I want to start this morning by reading a quote to you. So please listen. Talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall, or I shall suspect that you don't understand. Same author, different quote. Meanwhile, where is God? Go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. I don't know if any of you recognize these pain-filled quotes. But you will certainly recognize the author's name. You might be surprised to find that these were words written by C.S. Lewis. It was in a book called A Grief Observed. He wrote it in the early 60s about the experience he had when in profound grief after the death of his wife. Joy. Some were comforted by these words. Others, though, were troubled. Those who were troubled, well, they were used to hearing solid strength, strong faith, formidable apologetics, and genuine worship from C.S. Lewis in his books such as The Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity, the Weight of Glory, as well as the well-known children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. And so to suddenly read about his doubts and his questions in such, such a raw and, and transparent fashion, it was both strange and confusing. So here's this stalwart man of faith, and he's now basically broken and he is sobbing on the pages of this book. And I think what many people wondered was if Lewis can feel this way about God, what about me? One more quote from Lewis at this time in his life. It doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist's chair or you let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills on. You just don't expect someone like Lewis to talk like that. And it's disconcerting. And for those of you who love the Bible, you may have had a similar reaction to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you haven't read through Ecclesiastes recently, then I, I strongly encourage you to do so. Even if you haven't read it recently, I would bet that it made a lingering impression on you. 
For many, the impression is that of some of a somewhat gloomy, pessimistic view of life from what you might assume to be a man who seems to have grown somewhat cynical and jaded over time. The truth is you don't expect the words that you find in this book. In many cases, what we read in general from the Bible and the message that we find in Ecclesiastes, it, it, just, it just doesn't quite match. I wouldn't be surprised if the thought came into your mind at some point. Like, whoa, this is a bit disturbing. Should this even be in my Bible? Take chapter 3, verse 19, for example. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. Or after seeing what he calls the tears of the oppressed and there being no one to comfort them in their grief, the preacher steps in with a real dose of sunshine. And he says in chapter 4, So I congratulated the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity is done under the sun. The same God who inspired the Psalms, the Gospels, He speaks here in Ecclesiastes also. And what we must come to grip with is that these words, these words which disturb us, they are inspired by God to reveal aspects of God that are too often neglected by us. Now, after a few delays, we are beginning the book of Ecclesiastes. And God's purpose for this book, the overarching purpose, is the same purpose that He has for all the Scriptures, that we would know Him. The approach, though, is a bit different than, I would say, what we're used to. Because he's going to have us take a stark look at ourselves, at our neighbors, at the world around us, while he shifts somewhat to the background. And it's through seeing our own self-concerns that we will come to know God as he is. Through the lens, the lens through which we're going to look at the preacher's summary of life under the sun is his statement that we see here in verse 2, where he says, All is vanity. That's my title, really, for this introductory sermon, which I'm pretty certain we're not going to make it all the way through. All is vanity. And to lay the necessary foundation that I think we need in order to proceed forward, 
I want to cover five broad aspects of this book. We're going to look at the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, its value. We're going to look at the identity of the preacher, his message, and then finally the goal for the reader. But first, I think I trust you. You see, we need to go to God as we always do. But I feel it more than ever with a book like Ecclesiastes. We need to go to God and ask Him for the help that we need before we begin. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, author of Scripture, lover of sinners, You saved us from idolatry. How willing we were to create a version of You that doesn't exist. Lord, we want our minds and our hearts to be filled with a true knowledge of you because only then will our will drive forward in obedience to you with joy regardless of what we face. And so, please use this book. I ask just overall, for all the time we're going to spend, whether people are reading it on their own or whether they're sitting here listening to, to me expound upon it, I ask that you would show us yourself. You would reveal Christ to us even more and our need for him and how he fulfills and satisfies us and is the source of true joy and happiness in our life as we sang. And so we ask for the wisdom that we lack. Please fill it up to fullness through this, our time spent in this book. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's first consider the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. The Bible is a work of literature. Literature comes in different genres, which are basically their categories based on style. And each different genre of literature, it's it's read, it's appreciated differently from the other types, right? For example... To confuse a comic book with a medical textbook would lead to a whole lot of problems. They have to be read and understood differently. And both a comic book and a medical textbook, well, they they both have to be understood differently from poetry. And therefore, to accurately exegete and to interpret the Scriptures we must take into consideration the purpose and the style of a given book or a passage of Scripture. So the genre of Ecclesiastes is that of wisdom literature. It's wisdom literature. See, this is a, a category of literature that was common to many cultures at the time of the Old Testament. Wisdom literature deals with the way that the world works tries to tackle the big philosophical problems as well as the smaller things that are that are usually addressed with things like common sense. We've got modern philosophers still today who, who write about the lofty issues, such as the problems of evil, as well as others who address some of the just things from a more practical standpoint. I remember several years ago, my dad once, he gave me a book. He handed it to me and he said, because, you know, he... he 
knows I'm a Christian, that I read the scriptures. And he, and he, he had one of those moments where he just said, I want to give you a book that represents my philosophy to how to live life. So I appreciated that he was sharing this with me. The title of the book was Don't Squat With Your Spurs On, A Cowboy's Guide to Life by Texas Bix Bender. Texas Bix Bender. And perfectly honest, it makes a whole lot of useful points of practical, folksy wisdom that made up what the author called the Code of the West. My dad would have loved to have been a cowboy. So the code of the West was what he wanted to live by. Let me give you a few examples of the wisdom of Texas Bix Bender. Don't get mad at somebody who knows more than you do. It ain't their fault. Did you catch that? If you caught it, then you'd be chuckling right now. Let me read it again. Don't get mad at somebody who knows more than you do. It ain't their fault. Another one. The biggest liar that you'll ever have to deal with probably watches you shave his face in the mirror every morning. A woman's heart is like a campfire. If you don't tend to it regular, you'll soon lose it. It's basically a book of secular proverbs. Wisdom comes from God. And in kindness, he's imparted it to all men whom he has made in his image. Wisdom for practical daily life is it's a part of God's, God's common grace to men. And plenty of people who don't adhere to Christ or Christianity, they know how to manage their money well. They know how to respond positively to difficult situations, even respond to tragedy with strength and with dignity. But practical wisdom and godly wisdom Those are two different things. What separates the world's wisdom from what we find in the wisdom of the Scriptures is that God is recognized as the fountainhead of all wisdom. Proverbs 9 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. See, it's the Lord who created the world. He created man. And so only He can give true insight into the way His world works. Because only He is able to give wisdom in light of eternity. Now, in the Old Testament, there's five books that are classified as wisdom literature. One is the Psalms. God gives us here a a manual, basically, for worshiping Him. In the Proverbs, we've got a manual filled with short, pithy instructions providing wisdom for making wise and moral decisions. Ah, then there's the book of Job. deals with theodicy. Theodicy, it's the problem of evil and the justice of a sovereign God. And then there's the Song of Solomon. gives us a poetic picture of passion and purity romance and sex and marriage. And then there is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is wisdom, but of a different nature than we are familiar. It even sounds foreign to our ears, but even so, 
It's God preaching in a way that reveals that He sometimes speaks with riddles, with maxims, with metaphors, with poetry. And He is fully familiar with both the beauties and the messes of people and things. So wisdom literature in general and Ecclesiastes in particular, they show us more of God than perhaps we knew and in some cases were comfortable with. Let me just give us a little help here to compare um, between different types of wisdom literature. I thought um, Zach Eswine, he offered a really helpful comparison between the wisdom that we find in Ecclesiastes and the more familiar wisdom that we find in Proverbs. So, if Proverbs focuses on the norms, the rules, Ecclesiastes focuses on the exceptions. So, for example, as you were learning English, maybe as a kid, or, or maybe if, if English is a second language to you and you were taking classes to learn English grammar, you probably learned the I before E rule. So this grammar rule, it helps you to spell words like believe. Just remember the I before E rule. B-E-L-I-E, I before E, V-E. You can spell believe. You can spell words like You can spell grieve, G-R-I-E-V-E, I I before E. But once we get that rule down, then the teacher introduces other words like neither. I before E, right? No, neither is N-E-I-T-H-E-R. Neighbor, N-E-I-G-H. Receive, R-E-C-E-I. Hold on a minute. And then the teacher writes down several exceptions that we have to learn. We learn the I before E, but we've got to take in the exceptions. And so the whole rule, it goes like this. It's expanded to say I before E, except after C, and sometimes Y, and in words that sound like A, such as neighbor and way. So that little rhyme, it teaches you both the rule, I before E, and the exceptions to it. I've heard other people say English is one of the most confusing languages to learn. That's one example. Works perfectly fine for me, but uh, if you're stepping into English from another language, I imagine it's a little bit confusing. But then again, are all others as well. But see, my point here in comparing this is if you refuse the rule Because you'd rather not deal with the exceptions. Well, guess what? You're going to have a difficult time spelling in English. And the same is true in life. Ecclesiastes, it keeps us from entrusting ourselves to just trite formulas under the sun. Proverbs 13.21, for example. It says, adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. That is a true statement. But if you apply this bit of pithy and true wisdom given to us in Proverbs to Job's situation, 
it would lead you to conclude that Job's friends were warranted in thinking that Job needed to repent. Why? Because God says adversity pursues sinners. Did Job have adversity in his life when they showed up? Oh, boy, did he ever. His situation reveals what? Well, he must have sinned because adversity pursues sinners. And then along comes the preacher in Ecclesiastes with an exception under the sun. He says this in chapter 7. I have seen everything. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Job's situation it illustrates the sort of thing for which the preacher is preparing his students. His experiences, they don't correspond to the standard categories. Job's friends, they knew the I before E rule, but they didn't know that there were exceptions. And as a result, they misapplied true things and they damage their friend instead of loving him. And all done, all done misguidedly in God's name. And so what we have in Ecclesiastes is both an encouraging and a challenging book. It encourages us, but it also convicts and challenges us. It was written to be received and understood by young students. When I think of young students here, I look at this section right here because they, they kind of congregate kind of in this area. This is the young, restless, reform section right in here. You guys are spread out elsewhere too, but a lot of them kind of congregate right in this area. So, see, Ecclesiastes was written to you guys. Why? Because life is ahead of you. And what the preacher here hopes to do is to give you wisdom. It's coming from an older, wiser man. He wants to impart the lessons that he learned. How? By looking back over the years that he lived unwisely. Unwisely. So he's saying, let me tell you about the wrong way that I went in the hope that you won't go that way too. He wants us to have a, a proper orientation with with creation, with pleasure, with pain. And the preacher's goal is to help us to be able to see that this world, it is, it is to be enjoyed by those who can give glory to God for it. And when bad things happen, as they are going to do, he wants you not to get mad. Throw in the towel, but instead... To make you long for another world which won't have the trials like this one certainly does. And the way that he goes about this is by being painfully honest. Like, like C.S. Lewis was with his grief. And he wants us to have more than just practical wisdom for daily life. He wants us to long for the answers to the ultimate question. 
how can I find meaning in life? And so, if Ecclesiastes is a class on wisdom, it is not 101. It is not wisdom 101. This is upper division wisdom. These are things to be thought through, considered, chewed on as you go through life. And from the wisdom of this book, God intends to give you everything that you need for a worldview that can make sense out of the experiences in life, both the good ones and the bad ones. As one preacher put it, you will know how to live a fixed life in a broken world. So if you're saying that Ecclesiastes contains wisdom that will help you, help us not only how to live our lives well, but to understand the meaning of life itself, well, therefore, it must be a book of great value, right? Don't we need to know these things? Indeed, it is. So let's secondly look at the value of Ecclesiastes. And I think the overall value of this book is that it is relevant. In fact, it is perhaps the most relevant book in all the Bible. It speaks to the issues of the day. Any day. It speaks for people who have doubts about God, but yet they can't stop thinking about Him. Philip Ryken, he, he laid out four areas of relevance, and I thought they were spot on, and then I added one to them. So Ryken says these four things. I've reworded it, but here, here basically is what he was saying, and we're going to talk about these. Why, why is Ecclesiastes value? Because, valuable? Because it honestly addresses the troubles of life. Secondly, it graciously offers lessons for life. Thirdly, it plainly asks mankind's questions about life. And fourthly, it wisely presents God's principles for life. And then the one I thought was worth adding in here is it indirectly preaches the gospel of life. So one way to understand Ecclesiastes is that God made it to function like a compass. You know what a compass does. It always points you to true north. A compass, it'll point you in the direction essentially that you should go. You know which way north is and you know which way you need to head. Well, you know now. You have a compass. But just having a compass doesn't ensure that you will go that way. In other words, if it won't, this book won't do you, or a compass won't do you much good, and this book won't do you much good until you decide to heed what it says. Ecclesiastes, it will show us the way to live in this world. But it will only benefit you if you heed its wisdom. And so let's look at some of the valuable things that this book points us to. First, Ecclesiastes honestly addresses the troubles of life. One of the benefits of reading through the Psalms, another wisdom book, is all the emotions that you discover there that are exhibited in the psalmist as he prays and worships God. It's the full gambit of human emotion on display there. Not just the good ones. The frustrations, the anger, the desperation. Those are It's all there. Next time you're reading through the psalms, take note of the emotions of the, of the psalmist. You'll see it. The good of this is that they validate all the emotions that we feel as human beings. They show us the way then to righteously 
manage our emotions. How? It's by putting your trust fully in God. You may start out frustrated, but you don't have to stay there, not with the God that we have. You may get angry at certain points in your life, but you shouldn't stay there. Why? Because you have a God on the throne who loves you and is caring for you and He's wisely and sovereignly directing your life. You may be afraid. Oh, but what can men do? At the worst, He can kill you. But death is the means to going to be with God. And I don't want to be at odds with God who can throw my body and soul into hell. It gives us a perspective of how to live life and how to manage these emotions that we have. And in somewhat the same way, Ecclesiastes does that, but with the futility and the frustrations of life in a fallen world. It doesn't hide these things away. It doesn't pretend that problems like that, that they don't exist in the life of a godly person. No, in this book, God acknowledges things that we have come to realize. The drudgery of work. The injustice of the government. The unfulfilling result of pursuing selfish pleasures. And just the monotony that can be found in everyday life. One author referred to this as the treadmill of existence. You just keep going, but you're not really going anywhere. You know these things. These are the things that that you run into in life. And it's okay to admit this. Or, Or is that not Christian? Are we not supposed to address those types of things? See, Ecclesiastes, it agrees with your experiences. And reading this book, it helps you to be honest with God. It helps you to see that it's not inconsistent to trust God on the one hand and to struggle with the discontentment that you encounter in life under the sun. It's that one book that says to us, basically, I know you're discouraged. I know you're upset. You're feeling, you're feeling a bit confused about what you're going through. I've been there. Let's talk. Can you see how beneficial this is for us? If all you have, if all you have, Christian, is a fair weather faith, you are in trouble. You rejoice in the good times, but your faith crumbles in the bad. But the faith inspired by Ecclesiastes, it's resilient. Even death itself cannot shake a faith that is founded not upon the thoughts and the feelings of man, but solely upon the grace, power, and wisdom of God Almighty. Here's an observation that Philip Ryken offers. Let me quote it to you in full. He says, One thing that Ecclesiastes doesn't try to give us Oh, excuse me. One thing that Ecclesiastes doesn't try to do is give us all the answers. Ecclesiastes is not the kind of book that we keep reading until we reach the end and we get the answers, like a mystery. Instead, 
It's a book in which we keep struggling with the problems of life. And as we struggle, we learn to trust God with the questions, even when we don't have all the answers. This is how the whole Christian life works. It's not just about what we get in the end. It's also about the people that we become along the way. Discipleship is a journey, not a destination. So, there is value in this book for us. But only if we heed what it says. Another aspect of the uh, relevancy of Ecclesiastes and its value is that it graciously offers lessons for life. So the writer of this book, he had more money. He enjoyed more pleasure. And he possessed more human wisdom than anyone. Anyone, past, present, or future in all of human history. And yet, everything still ended in frustration for him. He had it all. And yet it all ended in tears. The kind that you wipe away in anger. You're like, and even though we have far less than the writer of Ecclesiastes, we will end up in the same place if we live our lives for ourselves and not for God. And the way that the writer is trying to offer us these lessons, it's by way of his own mistakes. He's saying to us, why make your own mistakes when you can learn from an expert like me instead? See, if you can get someone else to find out what happens when you touch a hot stove, isn't that better for you? The writer of this book, he can help us with everyday issues like money, sex, power, and the most practical issue of all, death. The author had it all. But he discovered that having it all nearly destroyed him. He climbed the ladder that golden ladder of ultimate success, he got up there and he looked over the brink and then he had the wherewithal to step back from the edge, climb back down and tell the rest of us there's nothing up there. And the question to us is whether we will choose to believe him or not. Because it's very possible that we may think that our experience up that same ladder will end up differently. Kind of like the lotto. You read the accounts of almost everybody who wins that billions of dollars, those millions of dollars. In most cases, those lives end up messed up. But I... I'm pretty confident that if someone said to you, here's a winning ticket to the big jackpot, you'd go, I think I can do it. I think I can figure out how to live life and not be messed up with having it all. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, 
Learn from my mistakes. You don't have to make them. You don't have to touch the stove. I did. It hurts. My life was destroyed, practically, by having it all. He would have you learn from his mistakes. But if you think you can do better than him, no one can stop you. And most likely, you'll come to the same conclusions. But after wasting a lot of time and experiencing a lot of pain, Instead, God would have you learn the lessons that He graciously offers to you here. Thirdly, Ecclesiastes is relevant because it plainly asks mankind's questions about life. Now, I understand you might be tempted to think, well, how could, especially if you're young, you're thinking, well, how could the experience the experiences of some uber-rich dude from several thousand years ago possibly be relevant to me today in the 21st century. Well, C.S. Lewis, again, we referred to him earlier. C.S. Lewis dubbed such an objection. How can this dude from millennia ago be relevant to me? He dubbed such an objection to the wisdom of the Scriptures. He called it chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. Which he defined this way as, quote, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on just on that count alone, discredited. If it's old, eh. That's chronological snobbery. And part of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes that you're familiar with, probably, is that when it comes to mankind's experiences in the world, he says what? Right in the... You can see it, actually, if your books are open to... He says it what there... In verse 9. What does he say there at the end of verse 9? He says, There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. And so the scenery, the fashions, the technologies, well, they might be different, and they are. But man, his needs, his desires, his struggles, his joys, his frustrations, well, they will always be the same. And guess what else hasn't changed? The questions. They're still the same ones that man has always had. What's the meaning of life? Does God really care? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? Is life really worth living? And this is one of the ways that you can know that God really cares about you. He's not afraid of your questions. The truth is never afraid of questions. And these are the intellectual and practical questions that the writer has wanted to ask and God, the author of Scripture, wanted asked for our sake. And what we find are answers that are not the easy ones that are often given to children in Sunday school. In fact, part of the spiritual struggle of the writer 
is with the answers that he's always been given. And as a result, he becomes like that student in class who asks the question, hears the teacher's answer, and then says, well, yes, but but what about... but?" That's the writer of Ecclesiastes. So the questions that are asked in Ecclesiastes are the ones that that have a result that we have as a result, I should say. We have these questions as a result of living life in a fallen world. And it is for our sake that they are asked. There's still two more things that here, I have to cut it off somewhere. I could just keep on going, but we'd be here till probably 1 p.m. And so I'm going to pause here, but but resume this next week, Lord willing. But what I want to conclude with today, we're halfway through what I want to introduce, okay? We, we opened with some pretty stunning quotes from C.S. Lewis. In time, in time, he was able to say, quote, I have gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. He came to see God in the way that, that we had come to expect. Ah, but it was now with much greater depth, much greater clarity than he had ever known before. And see, that's my hope for this book and for us going through it together is that we will also know God and we will also know ourselves better and we'll be even more convinced that our only hope for true meaning and happiness in life is found in Christ. And I haven't got to that portion yet so come back next week so I can show you how that's the case with an Old Testament book like Ecclesiastes, which doesn't mention the name of Jesus. As we sang, all the treasures of this world will never satisfy. You alone are endless joy. And so I cling to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that You would care for us in such a way as to accommodate our lack of trust in You. And in this world in which, which has been subjected to futility and in which we are constantly dealing with our own sin and its sinful and the desires produced by our flesh and, and the sins of others and the things that they choose to do and, and just all the challenges that presents for us not just in problems in life, but it challenges us to trust in You. Oh Lord, we, we know that You are faithful and we want to be able to trust You. And would You please use this book to help us to see why that can be difficult at times, but to ultimately land where the psalmists always land and indeed where the writer of Ecclesiastes land, lands that we can trust You, follow You, fear You, obey You, and know a greater joy than we could ever know otherwise. 
So we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.